Happy New Year. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I love you, Barrett. Thank you for saying that. Oh, man. Here we go. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you guys so much for being here. Um, good morning. I'm so glad that, that we are here together this new year. So happy new year to everybody. Um, happy new year to those that are joining us online and those that are here in person. We are so thankful for you being here. This is the point in the sermon where I make a really cheesy joke about how bad 2020 was and how great 2021 is gonna be, but let's be honest, I don't really have a lot of hope in some arbitrary number that's gonna make me feel a lot better. So let's just say we're all gonna hope in Jesus this year and let, let that be our hope, not just the number one added to the end of the year that we just experienced. So um, my name is BJ Ferguson and I'm the exact, 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 man, I told Brandon um, whenever we were going through the interview process, I was like, I can give you two sermons a year and one of them is not gonna be great and um, I've already done, this will be my second in a month, so um, if the last one was good, don't, don't expect a lot for this one right here, folks. Um, but either way, I'm here, I'm, I'm walking in obedience, trusting that the Lord is gonna show up but today I get to open God's word with you and we're actually gonna look at Psalm 78. But before we jump into the text, I wanna give you a little bit of, of, of context for those of you that might be here for the first time. And so if, if you're coming to church in this new year and, and, and 2020 was, was a really bad year and you're just saying, hey, I wanna start the year off with something different. If you were here with us, I just wanna say thank you for joining us. I wanna say thank you for joining us online or joining us here in person. We are glad that you decided to, to visit us and we hope that this is a place where you can feel at home. <clears throat> Each week we open God's word and, and we seek to, we seek to uh, look at God's word and, and look ahead at what he wants for our lives and what he wants for our best. And we believe that everything in God's word points to Jesus and here at Austin Oaks Church we are simply about Jesus. We believe that when you meet Jesus, when you know Jesus, and when you follow Jesus, it changes everything. In particular today, we're actually gonna look at the book of Psalms, which if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's, it's right in the middle of the Bible. And if you have an app, it's, it's right in the middle of the app. I, I, like it's, it's hard to describe that way, but just look up Psalms and then you will find it. Um, and, and this is actually a really interesting book of the Bible. It's, it's a collection of, of songs and poetry that, that God has included in telling a story about who he is. Um, this is actually a song that was written during the time of King David, which if you don't know who King David is, he's, he's the guy that threw a rock and hit Goliath, and, and he was one of the greatest kings uh, for, the, for the Jewish people. And, and it's a, a man that is looked to as someone that God loved. Well, this particular psalm is a historical psalm. It actually gives history about the people of Israel. And, and, and I think it's interesting because being a psalm, there is some sort of poetic nature to it. And I find it interesting that God would include a book of songs and poems that, that are for the purpose of, of telling a historical or moral message when we learn things through song or rhythm or rhyme, they can tend to, to dwell with us and we can recall them much better. And for example, guys, I'm, 
I'm really nervous about this, so I need you to give me a little bit of grace, okay? Um, when I was in high school, um, there was a Spanish class that actually instructed us in this particular way to remember the countries and uh, capitals of Central and South America. And for some reason, I remember them today because it was Bogota, Colombia, Quito, Ecuador, Lima, Peru, La Paz, Bolivia, Asuncion, Paraguay. And I, I, I could go on. Like, thank you, yeah. I could keep going, that's the weird thing, but those don't mean anything to me now other than the fact that I know that those are, like that's information, but like I'm, it, it connected with me, whatever that was connected with me and I, I now retain that information. And not, that isn't just now, but like even in kids shows with my boys, like when we, when we want them to learn how to read, we actually look at shows that, that sing little songs that teach them some of the rules or uh, like even with Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, like we gotta try new food because it might taste good. I heard some parents out there singing that one because we gotta eat our broccoli sometimes, not me, but them, yeah. Um, but, but not only that, there are things from when I was a child, whenever I would go sit in church with my family, that I would, I would hear songs that had lyrics and melody that would connect with me, and, and this one stuck out. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. There are these things about rhyme and rhythm that, that connect with us. And, and so the fact that God included songs and poetry within the context of his word is amazing. And even though looking at this particular one today, we might not get a sense of the, the fullness of what the ancient Hebrew song was, we can still see some things that are poetical in nature. You see, songs and poems can often be used to make deep connections to those that, that hear them. This, is deeply, this deep connection would help solidify what is being taught. I find this amazing that God would include this form of teaching, but fortunately for you, I'm not lyrically gifted, so I'm not gonna sing any further, but I will make references to songs that might help you uh, remember the point that is being made. So all that said, let's open up our books, our, our Bibles, to Psalm chapter 48, and we're gonna look at verses one through eight. And it'll be up on the screen if you would like to look at it there. It says this, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old things that I have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. He commanded to our fathers to teach their children that the generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commands. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let us pray as we seek God to show his word to us and see what he wants for our lives. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your word that it is unique and it is creative and it speaks to us today. 
God, I pray that we would hear what you said to your people so long ago, and Lord, that it would move us into action today, that it would bring to mind the things that you have done in our lives, and it would motivate us to action so that we might proclaim to the next generation all of your great goodness. So God, as, as we look at this, I pray that you would be here in our midst. We pray all these things in your name, amen. So the sermon today is titled, For Future Generations. We'll be looking at the current generation's role for future generations. We will see why it is important for God's people to continually resurface the works of God and look at what results that kind of investment can be. These are the first eight verses of a much larger psalm. We don't have to read all of it right here, but in the beginning of the psalm, it, it kind of gives us the, the what we are to do and the why we are to do it. But then the last 63 verses of the psalm actually just models it for us. He is telling the story of the Jewish people over the past hundred years. And remember, this is in a song, in a, in a, in a poetical type type way. We also see the way that God has been faithful and worked in powerful ways. And we see that God's people rejected and replaced them time and time again. But there is a pattern that is reoccurring, that is a pattern of God's faithfulness, people's rebellion, and yet God's plan is still being accomplished. My hope is that today we will see that the people of God have a responsibility to tell the next generation, to set their hope in God, to remember his works, and to keep his commands. For my first point, uh, we will see clearly here in the, in the text that, that we are to tell the next generation. To, to help you remember this point, I'm gonna, this is where I'm gonna kind of go back to some songs, so please have grace for me. So we are to tell the next generation, so go tell it on the mountain. That is exactly what I was hoping for. Thank you guys so much. I didn't have to sing the rest. Y'all just did it from that point on. But we are to tell the next generation. We are to go tell it on a mountain. We are to tell them about the great things of God. Whew, that made me feel, I was kind of worried that nobody was gonna jump in on that one. Um, but looking at the scriptures, it's very clear that the first three verses are just kind of an invitation, like, hey, please listen to what's about to be said. But then... Uh, it jumps into to, to these particular asks. It says, it says in verse four, we will not hide them, them being the things that we've learned from the people that came before us, but we will tell the coming generation of the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. And he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. You see, verse four and five make it clear that the current generation, most likely written during the reign of King David, is to tell the coming generation of God's glorious deeds, or what I like to call his, his worthiness to be worshiped, his might, or like his strength, or his power, or like in particular, like his, his victory in battles that you've seen throughout the works of God, and God's wonders, or all the impossible feats that God has done, or his testimony and his law, in other words, like the, the thing that God has given us, his word and his promises. See, the people of God are responsible to tell the next generation of all of these things. And the way I'm gonna kind of like summarize that is this, that it's the complete greatness of God. There's nothing in this list that says, hey, I can just leave this aspect of God out 
It, it is actually saying, hey, we need to describe all of these things. We need to talk about the complete greatness of God and tell that to the next generation. But this is not a new concept for the Jewish people. In fact, they've known this throughout their history. It's been told to them time and time again. And particularly in Deuteronomy, we see it multiple times where, where God is telling them to, to teach their children and pass it on to the next generation. And, and, and it even goes, it says, post it on your walls and hang them on your doorpost and make it shine off of your face. This is how often you are to tell others as is, is, is often as you can, let us tell the next generation about the complete greatness of God. I do wanna make sure that there is no confusion. It's not just for parents telling their children. It kinda of has a little bit more of a communal aspect to it. It's talking about ancestors passing on to the next group of people. And we have an example of that that we actually do here in our church. One of the most beautiful things that we do here is something called child dedication. When, when a parent will bring a child up on stage and stand in front of the whole church and say, hey, this, this is my child. I have a prayer for them and I want to see them walk with the Lord. And, and then they invite you guys, they invite our church, our community, and they say, would you help me do this? Would you help me raise this child that they might follow after Jesus? And, and we as a church respond back, say, we say yes, like we commit to doing that with you. We commit to being a part of that. And so when we are looking at the scriptures right here, we are, we are seeing that this invitation to, to tell the next generation is, is actually something that we are doing here in our community. In other words, what we do here, the, the, the psalm that is telling people of God to, to do is we as a community of God's people will tell the next generation about the complete goodness of God. Before we move on, I do wanna point out one of the unique things about the context of this passage that will be really important. This, this is not about a situational thing. It's not about how great of a time it was, even though this was in the, the probably the best time in, in the, the history of the Jewish people at this point, in, in King David's reign. It's not about how bad of a situation it is, it's not about how good of a situation it is. The task is still the same for God's people, that we are to tell the next generation about the complete greatness of God. See, for the people of God, it doesn't matter what those things might be, and I, I think about it even in my life, well, what has hindered me from telling others about the complete greatness of God? Like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm too tired, or I don't have time, or um, it seems like it would be dangerous, or it would be awkward if I did that. There are so many different excuses, but let's go even further. What if, what if we had a leadership in our country that, that was not willing to let us talk about the greatness of God? What if we had a leadership that actually supported us and encouraged us to do that? It is not dependent on us on that particular, or, or, uh, on the government, on that particular situation, our role as the people of God, as a church, as a group of people, is still to be committed to telling the complete greatness of God no matter what the situation. So, if that is our commitment, we should go tell it on the mountain, right? All right, that, whatever. Y'all just didn't want me to sing anymore. Moving on to the next point. So God being God had the right to simply order things to be done and we as his followers can trust and obey. But in his kindness, God lets us know the why 
He is doing it, and that's gonna be in our next points. So for points two, three, and four, we're gonna actually look at the why, why we tell the next generation. And point number two is, is this, so that the next generation will set their uh, hope on God. To help drive this point home, I'm gonna do the same thing again, so bear with me. Um, my hope is built on nothing less than Way to go, guys. Y'all are doing so great. I didn't even have to sing that one. I just, it was the poetry of it. Y'all just see me as a poet, probably. Man, I just wish I was a better singer. Thanks for being you, Seth. Um, I really appreciate that. All right, so let's look at the scripture again. Verse six and seven says this, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget his works, but keep his commandments. We're gonna focus on that, that first one right here. You see, we spent the past month of December talking about hope in our sermons. In many of the passages of the Old Testament, hope is talking about a, a reality that's actually a quite difficult circumstance, but points to a brighter future. And again, in this time, this is actually a, a, a well-off time, but yet we are still talking about telling the future generations about the hope that can be dependent on Jesus. We're on God at this point. But the author of this psalm, in the midst of this prospering time, proceeds to then expound throughout the rest of this psalm about not only the great things about God, but also some of the failures of the people of Israel over the past hundreds of years. He pointed out specific instances of doubt and arrogance and rebellion and fickleness, and much of this has to do with where their hope was resting in that moment. There's a particular section of this psalm where we can see the, the poetic nature, uh, uh, the artistry as it was that, that uh, the author includes in this psalm. I always love it when, when the author kind of weaves a thread of truth throughout the, the, the whole uh, story, the, the whole song. And in verses nine and 11, it actually goes on and tells a story about the, the Ephraimites who were one of the stronger tribes of Israel. They were, they were known as being some of the warriors that would go into battle first. Um, the verse goes on and then describes that, that, that at one time they went into battle being known for being brave archers and, and, and being good with a bow. And, and it says that they became afraid and ran away because they did not listen to God. Then later in true poetic fashion, in verses 56 and 57, like ne nearly 50 verses later, the thread ties back in and it says the author talked about how them rebelling from God is like trusting in a deceitful bow, a deceitful and twisted bow. Here we have a strong and experienced soldiers placing trust in their skill and their tools more than in the complete greatness of God. When the Ephraimites trusted in the strength of their bows, their bows twisted and broke. The true, uh, this is true of Israel whenever they place their hope in anything other than God. It led to destruction. When our hope is found in something other than the eternal God, it will fail. Telling the next generation <clears throat> about who God uh, is must include utter dependence on the complete goodness of God. Israel constantly placed trust in other things. Is that me? Maybe I'm sweating too much. That could be it. They place their hope in resources. They place their hope in their abilities. They place their hope in their leadership. All of these things failed to give the people what they wanted. 
Where do we place our hope? Do we place any of our hope in similar places that the Israelites place their hope? Do we place it in comfort? Man, I don't even wanna go down that road. That's where I place a lot of my hope. Do we place it in our ability saying, man, if I just had control, if I could just choose, if I could just make up my mind, then, then my hope would be firm, then it would be set. Or what about leadership? And we could talk about who our leadership is, whether, whether that be across the nation or whether that be our church leadership. We say like, as long as they're doing what I want them to do, then my hope is secure. But what we find over and over again throughout the scriptures is when our hope is set in anything other than God, it will fail. You see, the only place hope can be found is in God himself. The next generation must know that hope found anywhere else fails. God is the only one worthy enough, eternal enough, patient enough, faithful enough to follow through on all of his promises. Therefore, no matter how great things are now or how terrible things are now, the only thing, the one and only thing that we can place our hope in is God himself. The verse says to, oh man, I must have. The next generation needs to know, uh, please forgive me on that one. The next generation needs to know that they need to hear to set their hope in God above all things. As we move on to the next point, I must recap and tell the, uh, and tell the next generation, I'm gonna, sorry guys, lost, lost focus on that one. As we move on to our next point, just let me, let me talk about the first couple of points. One, we needed to tell the next generation. Remember, go tell it on the mountain. Two, we needed to set our hope in God. My hope is found in nothing less. And this, this next one, I'm gonna have to, to deviate a little bit on the point, but let me read the verse again. It's a, verse seven continues like this. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. And this point I'm gonna say is so that they will remember his works. And to drive this point home, I'm gonna go not with like kind of Christian lyrics because I couldn't really think of anything that was there, but I'm gonna go with Sarah McLaughlin on this one and I will remember you. Like, it was my prom theme. I'm, I'm not proud of that, but I, I'm not not proud of it at the same time. But it's just a fact. Um, and so this verse that says not to forget the works of God, there are several things that come to mind to me about this particular concept of, of remembering or not forgetting. And the first one is recall. Like, what is our ability to retrieve the information that we need to retrieve? Or then there's also like the forgetting piece, which is kind of like leaving something behind and losing focus. And then there's the remembering piece, which is consciously focusing on something that's next. And so the, the way my brain works is pretty weird, as you might already know. Like, I can recall every lyric to 90s country music. I'm, yet again, I'm also proud of that. Um, I can quote every Chris Farley movie and sketch that's ever been made. I can sing to you that the capital of Colombia is Bogota. But none of these things influence me in every moment that I am walking forward. They're, they're things that I know, but I don't carry them with me in every moment. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not embarrassed by these things but they don't motivate me to get back on the right track. You see, when the psalmist says, do not forget the works of God, it's not just about remembering the facts and the information that someone would recall. The people of Israel most likely already had the information in their, 
their own knowledge bank. They, they understood the facts about what had happened to the, the people of Israel. Though these are good things to know, the psalmist is saying that they should not forget the works of God. It's not just the, the cognitive understanding. There's something more that must have been there. You see, the, the concept here is that it's more than intellectual knowledge. If recall is what God uh, uh, has done, it does not influence your current reality. But if, if it does not uh, influence our current rea- reality, then it's what we have forgotten in his works. We also have the concept of forgetfulness that we need to address. When we lose something small, like our keys to our car, it is often accidental because our mind has been distracted. However, I'm not sure that the psalmist is trying to say that this is the kind of forgetfulness that we see in this psalm. He does not just talk about the great things that God has done, he also includes many of the great failures of God's people. He points out the mighty works of God. In verses 12 through 16, In 23 through 29, he talks about God delivering the people from Egypt and providing for them in the desert in powerful and miraculous ways. And then again in 42 through 55, he he speaks more specifically about what God did in Egypt. And he also talks about God providing as his people came into the promised land. What is unique is he also points out the failures of the people. In verses 17 through 22, They are reminded of when they didn't trust God to provide for them in the desert after all that God had done for them and what he'd brought them through. And then in verses 30 through 37, he reminds them of their continued fickleness and rebellion against in the midst of God's kindness. You see, the author is making it clear that Israel wasn't just forgetting God, but actively working against him at times. When the author says, do not forget, it's not like the passive forgetfulness of us losing our keys, it's an active forgetfulness that's known as rebellion. That would be like, if we lost our keys, it's because we threw them really far away. And we decided that the best course of action at that point is, all right, just grab this guy. Thank you. Hello? Hello, all right, there we go. The best course of action at this time would be to, sorry, let me go back. Um, The author's making it clear that Israel wasn't just forgetting about God, but actively working against him at times. And when the author said, do not forget, it is not a passive forgetfulness like we have when we lose our keys, but an active forgetfulness that's known as rebellion. That'd be like when we lose our keys because we just decided to throw them into a big field, but instead of just a going and getting the keys, we, we decide the best course of action is to take a sledgehammer and destroy our car. Like, that's the kind of forgetfulness that we're looking at here. So let me try to give this analogy about this kind of forgetfulness uh, through, through the perspective of an old football player. I'm gonna call this a parable, and you might be able to discern that it might be based on somebody's life. You see, an old football player loves telling stories about the, their football days. He talks about his greatest plays. He talks about his greatest victories. Some of them only have two. I'm not gonna say who. But in telling the stories about the greatest victory that he has been a part of, it would be easy for him to claim more glory than he deserved for that that victory that the team earned. However, when he tells the story, he says it's something like this. Yeah, we won the game, but I didn't do too much to help. You know, in fact, I had like five penalties I fumbled the ball, I forgot what I was supposed to do the entire time, and on top of that, 
I injured two of my own teammates, and just for good measure, I decided to give my team a flat tire on the way to the game. So in, what would happen in this particular moment if, if this guy told the story that, that included all this? It means that if they still won the game, he doesn't deserve any of the credit. In fact, the credit needs to go to the team because they not only had to, to win the game, they had to overcome the failures of the person that was telling the story. You see, when I am claiming glory for myself, it is actually robbing God of his glory. When I tell the story in my life, I deserve none of the glory. God deserves all of it. I was the one that was rebelling against him. And so when this psalmist starts telling the story about forgetting the works that God has done, he's actually telling the story about how the people rebelled against God and actively worked against him, yet in God's faithfulness, he still pursued after him, and it gives God more glory. So what about remembering then? What about, what about active remembering? And Remembering is when we consciously choose to bring what we know about God, what he has done, when we reflect on those times when we have rebelled, those times when we were running away from God, those darkest moments of our life, and we bring that memory into the present moment, and that present moment of being with God in that moment moves us forward. So when we say remember his works, we are actually saying, God, I invite you into this moment. I bring you with me so that as I move forward, that I am walking forward with you. We tell the next generation about the stories of our past so that they are mindful of his complete greatness as we move forward. We need to tell future generations to remember his works. Not only that, but remember the good and the bad and the ugly of our story so that they might see the overwhelming faithfulness of God in the midst of that. So let me recap. We're moving on to the fourth point, and we've got this. Uh, tell the next generation so that they can set their hope in God, so that they can remember his works, and it finishes out by saying this, but keep his commandments in verse seven. And the fourth and final point in these verses is so that they would keep his commands. And to help drive this point home, I wanna imprint this song, this last song. This is the last one, I promise, guys. I'm not gonna, this one's even deviating further. This is not even, this, this is not even pop culture. It's, it's like little kids. So little kids, if you know this one, go for it. O is for obey. O is for obey. There it is. <laughs> Parents were so embarrassed to sing that one. Like, even if they do know, they were embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to sing it, but it's, oh, obeying is doing what you should. O is for obey. That's, that's the end of it right there. But I don't love it, but, but it does help me remember the point. So I hope that helps you remember that the fourth point is to keep his commands. You see, talking about obedience and keeping his commands can sometimes be difficult. But the purpose is to invite us into a relationship with God. And if you'd allow me to kind of like take a little bit of a deviation, and I wanna, I wanna just point out a, a little concept about God's holiness that, that helps us understand why obeying and keeping commands is good. And it, it says this. So throughout the, the scriptures, like God's nature, his very presence is holiness. And in the presence of God, there is just something unique and something different. And, and his very nature is perfect. And in the presence of perfection, there can be nothing imperfect. 
And we see that in, in when, when people, when God reveals his glory throughout the Bible, whenever people see him, that there's a uniqueness about it. In fact, when Moses interacts with God at one point at the burning bush, God says, hey, Moses, remove your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. And so what does Moses do? He takes off his sandals and, and he comes close to God. He, he comes near God in that moment because he obeyed what God said and he was able to come near God. And then later Moses says, hey God, I want to see some of your glory. And God's like, I will show you some of my glory, but it has to be on my terms because if we don't do it like this, then, then you will die. So I'm going to give you this, this rule, this, this way of doing this so that you can see me and be near me and have a relationship with me and, and not die. And so what we have is a pattern of God showing his faithfulness to invite people into relationship by giving his commands, all right? So you see, by listening to him and believing that his words to be true and acting in alignment to his word can be a benefit for those that want to have a relationship with God. So for the people of Israel, when they were walking in obedience to God, they had the blessing of the nearness of God with them. But when they turned to idols, placing their hope in something other than God, it did not go well for them. When his people were not obeying, like, like a good father, God would discipline them and his people uh, would discipline his people in order that they might see that his presence is a better place for them. In other words, God has provided a way for his people to have access to him by obeying his commands. So why was it so hard for Israel to live this way? We see time and time again that they're, they are easily distracted to walking in obedience. The evidence is clear in this psalm. We see it in the same way that Adam and Eve did in the beginning. They wanted to choose for themselves and they saw something that they thought was better and they craved it. They indulged in it and nothing satisfied. So they wanted more. This was not limited to the people of Israel but also evident in many of the leaders Abraham and Moses and even King David were people that could not remain completely obedient to God. In my life, no matter how hard I try, I find myself being not satisfied by the things that this world provides. So what hope is there then? In this psalm, here we are, boldly proclaiming the wonders of God to the next generation so that they might completely place their hope in God that they might completely remember that all the things that he has done and that they might completely walk in obedience to God's word. But history tells us that not even the best of them could do this. In fact, verse eight highlights it even more. It says, and, they would, and that they would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful, just by looking at the example of this psalm, what hope is there for anybody? How could we possibly walk in obedience in such a way that might earn the right to be in the presence of God when time after time the people of God, the heroes of the Old Testament seem to fail time and time again? But there remains this thread, the thread that God's promises are true, the thread that God's plan will endure even in the midst of failures, and the thread that God is worth everything um, it doesn't even matter what the cost is. So here we are wanting future, for future generations to know God so that they might place all of their hope in him 
so that they would actively bring him to mind as they reflect on his past faithfulness and that they would pursue walking in obedience to his word. But there seems to be a missing piece. You see, before we wrap up, we we must ask this question, what is that missing piece? Who was able to place their hope completely in God? Who was able to completely remember all of his works? Who was able to completely keep all of his commands? You see, the people of Israel had the promises of God to hold on to. They heard of great things and they saw great things, but they did not get to see the fulfillment of the promise that would allow them to do these things completely. At the end of this psalm, there's a glimmer of hope. The end talks about God's provision of King David. The provision of a good king is, is a reflection of a greater hope to come. It's, it says that King David was able to lead with an upright heart and guide them with a skillful hand. We know that King David had his failures, but we also know that God will continually be faithful. One day there would be a king who would come and sit on the throne of David that would not just be upright and skillful, but he would be completely perfect. There's only one throughout all of time that has been able to do this completely, be able to, um, the only one that we can tell to the next generation. So what are we supposed to do for future generations? Verse eight points something out to me. We are to tell the next generation to not be like their fathers, stubborn, rebellious, not steadfast, not faithful. Guess who the fathers of the next generation would be? It's us. We have fallen short of doing the things ourselves. And when we are far from God and unable to be in the presence because of our brokenness and imperfection, God provided someone to come and do what we could not do. God sent his son Jesus to do that which this stubborn and rebellious and apathetic generation could not. Jesus perfectly showed us how to live with a complete hope in God. Jesus perfectly walked with God and constantly was mindful of him. On top of that, Jesus perfectly obeyed all of God's commands. He did what we could not do. In fact, Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus lived up to everything that we could not. So when we tell future generations about the amazing things that God has done, we tell them to place their hope not in a list of things that's impossible to do, but to completely recognize their weakness and failures and place all of their hope on Jesus Christ, who perfectly lived this out. Jesus Christ is the answer for the people of Israel we're looking for. Jesus Christ is the one that God has used to display his complete greatness. Jesus Christ is the, is the word of God that walked among us. Jesus is our hope. He is our constant reminder. He is our perfection that covers all of our failures. Our fuel for telling the future generations is not our ability or our skill. It is Jesus and his gift of grace. If you don't, do not have this, I want you to know that this gift, this gift of grace, it is offered to you right now. If you find yourself needing hope, if you desire the presence of something eternal or the freedom from your failures, the scriptures say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. In this moment, you, have, you can have your eternity secured. You can speak to God right now. Let's not miss this opportunity. And maybe you've already done this, and, and if so, I, w- I want to ask you to do one thing. You see, this psalm is written to all of God's people. It is written to people that are old and young alike because the next generation here is not just 
the people that are younger than me, the next generation says in verse six are the people that are yet to be born. Austin Oaks, this is a place where I think we are uniquely situated. We have every generation amongst our people right now and God is speaking to every generation. Because in order to reach the next generation, it will take all of us. If you're in elementary school, I want you to know that Jesus is worth talking about. Talking about to your friends. If you're in high school, Jesus is worth bringing up in conversation. If you are a young adult, Jesus is worth risking awkward situations. If you are a parent, Jesus is worth talking about on a daily basis in your home. If you are wise in your years, please allow me to say it that way, Jesus is worth passionately investing in others and teaching them. We need every generation to be willing to proclaim the complete greatness of God. You see, in the first six verses that we talk about, there are no less than 13 references to telling or hearing about God's plan. If we are to reach the next generation, for those to follow Jesus, our role is to not remain silent. Our role is to use our mouths to proclaim the goodness of God. Every generation must be willing to share our story. We must be willing to share why our hope can be found in Jesus and nowhere else. We must be willing to share why Jesus is present with me through all of my failures and in any success. We must be willing to share why Jesus' perfect life was sacrificed for me and why that gives me access to God the Father. Will you join me, church? Will you ask God to help us reach future generations by being willing to speak up about God's works? Here's one just action point that I would ask you guys to walk away with. Today, if you are willing, share a story of a time when God showed up in the midst of one of your lowest moments. You can tell a friend, you can tell your kids, you can post it on Facebook, you can call someone, and if you don't like calling people anymore because that's not a thing, you can text people. Let's lay aside any desire to talk about my victory or your victory and see what might come of telling a story about God's victory found in Jesus Christ. Pray with me, church. Heavenly Father God, Lord, we need you because we cannot do the things that, that you are asking us to tell the next generation about. If there is anything evident here, Lord, dependence on anything other than you will lead to failure. And so God, I right now proclaim that my dependence is on Jesus and nothing else. My dependence on, on following you is entirely based off of the faithfulness of Jesus. And so God, I pray that you would be with us in this space. Lord, as we reflect on your goodness to us, as we reflect on our shortcomings, but remember your faithfulness that is seen through Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be in this place. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.